You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. When it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices, things can get complicated and time-consuming fast. Now you can assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more with a single platform, Vanta. Vanta's leading trust management platform helps you continuously monitor compliance alongside reporting and tracking risk. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn why thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection, unify risk management, and streamline security reviews. Watch Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. North Korean cyber espionage against a Russian aerospace firm. The reptile rootkit is used against South Korean systems. An update on Cloudsy. Klopp is using torrents to move data stolen in move-it exploitation. Andrea Little Limbago from Interos wonders about the dangers of jumping headfirst into new technologies. Rick Howard ponders quantum computing. And Medusa is back on Apple Podcasts. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Monday, August 7th, 2023. Solidarity against what Russian TV is calling the collective West is one thing, but Pyongyang isn't sentimental enough to let that stand in the way of industrial espionage. Reuters reports that North Korean operators have successfully penetrated NPO Mashinostroyenia, a rocket design bureau headquartered in a Moscow suburb. The apparent industrial espionage wasn't deterred by Russia's attempts to cultivate closer relations with Pyongyang, which it views as a potential supplier of ammunition and other material for the war against Ukraine. Sentinel Labs researchers are the source for the technical details in the Reuters report, and they found two instances of a North Korean compromise. One, the compromise of an email server, was by Scarcroft. The second involved a Windows backdoor open carrot, which has been associated with the Lazarus Group. The relationship between the two compromises remains unclear, 
they could be cooperating or Pyongyang may consider the target important enough to hedge its bets by assigning the Russian firm two different intelligence groups to multiple independent threat actors, as Sentinel Labs puts it. Sentinel Labs, in the course of its usual monitoring of North Korean cyber activity, identified a leaked email collection containing an implant with characteristics related to previously reported DPRK-affiliated threat actor campaigns. This led to discovery of the larger campaign, its evidence of Pyongyang's determination to advance its missile development program, a goal it probably considers more important than any new collaborative relationship with Moscow. Threat actors are using the open-source kernel module rootkit Reptile to target Linux systems in South Korea, the Hacker News reports. This isn't Reptile's first appearance in South Korean networks. Companies there have seen it before. The OnLab Security Emergency Response Center said in a report on the malware that the initial point of access in this most recent wave remains unclear. The researchers, however were able to provide considerable information about the malware itself. Several malicious tools were used by the attacker. These tools included the reptile rootkit, a reverse shell, a command tool, and a startup script. These tools allowed the attackers to gain access and control over the victim's computer. Additionally, the attackers used another malware strain called ISH, which is a special kind of shell that uses the ICMP protocol to communicate with the attacker. The reason for using ISH was likely to avoid detection by traditional network monitoring methods that look for suspicious TCP or HTTP communications. While the targeting of South Korean companies might suggest a North Korean operation, there's at present no attribution. The open-source rootkit is in principle available to several distinct threat actors, and it's entirely possible that Pyongyang has nothing to do with Reptile. Halcyon has published an update on Cloudsy, an ISP that provides services to various APTs and ransomware affiliates. Halcyon's researchers were contacted by the IPXO address marketplace, which was leasing 14 IP ranges to Cloudsy. Halcyon says... The IPXO representative informed Halcyon that, based on the research report, they're taking and will continue to take action to prevent additional abuse. They asked for additional intelligence from Halcyon, which was provided for their consideration. Halcyon's report said that Cloudsy, despite its self-presentation as a company incorporated in the U.S., is for the most part staffed by employees of a company based in Tehran. Cloudsy said in a statement to CSO that it's investigating the situation, so we'll all await the outcome of Cloudsy's self-examination. The CLOP ransomware group is using torrents to leak data stolen via the MoveIt vulnerabilities, bleeping computer reports. Decentralized torrents offer a more efficient way for the group to distribute the data while making it more difficult for law enforcement to shut them down. Bleeping computer explains... Even if the original seeder is taken offline, a new device can be used to seed the stolen data as necessary. If this proves successful for CLOP, we will likely see them continue to utilize this method to leak data as it's easier to set up, does not require a complex website, and may further pressure victims due to the increased potential for broader distribution of stolen data. Yuri Shaishal, the head of Ukraine's State Special Communications Service, 
has outlined their organization's war objective, to push Russia back into an intellectual and IT Middle Ages. Achieving this goal involves a complex strategy, including effective defense measures and international support for sanctions to disrupt Russia's IT supply chain. In an interview with the Kyiv Independent, Shaishal reviewed the cyber phase of Russia's war, describing the relentless nature of Russian cyber attacks. These cyber attacks began as preparations in January and February of the previous year, leading up to Russia's conventional invasion. Notably, wiper attacks were a significant component of this cyber preparation, with a major assault on state authorities marking the starting point. Despite the initial successes of the cyber attacks, Ukraine has managed to defend against subsequent attacks attributed to the rapid application of lessons learned during the lead-up to the war. These lessons were gained through prior experiences of Russian cyber operations during the Crimea invasion in 2014 and the NotPetya campaign in 2017. Successful defense has also been enhanced through improved cooperation between the private sector, friendly foreign governments, and various Ukrainian government agencies. Infighting over agency interests has given way to a more collaborative atmosphere. Sanctions against Russia have proven effective and are encouraged to continue. Shaishal believes that excluding Russia from international organizations and isolating the country from the rest of the world will hinder their access to crucial technologies, ensuring future security for Ukraine. Despite Russia's efforts to evade sanctions, their dependency on Western systems, especially from the U.S., will likely impede their ability to launch attacks within the next six months to a year, favoring Ukraine's position in the conflict. And finally, Medusa, an independent Russian-language news service operating from Riga, Latvia, said Friday that Apple removed Medusa's flagship podcast, What Happened?, from the Apple podcast streaming platform. What Happened focuses on news affecting Russia, and Medusa isn't particularly sympathetic with the Russian regime. Apple's suspension notice read, We found an issue with your show, What Happened?, which must be resolved before it's available on Apple Podcasts. Your show has been removed from Apple Podcasts. Medusa says that no further explanation was offered, but the outlet says that it was effectively outlawed by Russia this past January when it was designated an undesirable organization. According to Medusa, Roskonmanzor, Russia's Internet Governance Authority, complained to Apple about Medusa earlier this summer and Medusa believes that Roskomnadzor's complaint may have prompted the suspension. Whatever the cause, the ban was short-lived. Medusa wrote in a Sunday update, two days after it was removed, what happened is again available on the Apple podcast streaming platform. Apple did not provide a reason for suddenly removing and restoring the podcast. It's an unusual incident. Apple, like other companies, tries to comply with local laws where it operates, but Cupertino isn't in the habit of saying how high when Roscad Manzor cries jump. If nothing else, the incident illustrates the challenges platforms face as they try to straddle the divide between publisher and common carrier. Perhaps Roscad Manzor should consider traveling to Riga itself. Peacefully, of course.
coming up after the break. Andrea Little Limbago from Enteros wonders about the dangers of jumping headfirst into new technologies. Our own Rick Howard ponders quantum computing. Stay with us. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. everybody want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor splunk you know you need to keep operations humming around the clock but potential disruptions are everywhere splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime the world's largest enterprises rely on splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient resilient and innovative with Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com resilience. And it is always my pleasure to welcome back to the show Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's own chief security officer, also our chief analyst. Rick, welcome back. Hey, Dave. So on this week's CSO Perspectives podcast, you are talking about quantum computing and the potential impact to enterprise security. And Rick, <laughs> I have to say, uh, I think I will join a lot of people out there who say that I do not understand a whole lot about what quantum computing really is or how it works under the hood. But what I do know... It's a big club, dude. Yeah. Okay. I think it was he's like Richard Feynman, you know, who like there's the quantum mechanics man. So he didn't even like he didn't understand quantum dynamics. So I, I don't feel that bad about my limited understanding. But what I do know is that when it finally gets here, uh, we're going to have computers that are much faster than the computers we have today. But I'm reminded of uh, like what we say about uh, fusion energy, you know, like it's always 20 or 30 years away, no matter when you ask. Uh, are, are, we, are we in that mode with quantum computing? That's what it feels like most of the time, you know, because you're right about that, Dave. Quantum computing is in a class of near future technologies 
that when and if they ever get here are going to fundamentally change how we all live our lives, not just in the cybersecurity and tech worlds, but for, you know, everybody on the planet. But for as long as I can remember, like you said, these technologies have always been just over the horizon, like, you know, artificial general intelligence, AGI, 5G networking, autonomous vehicles, and abundant solar energy. And like you said, it doesn't matter how many years go by. It's always just 30 years away. But what I've noticed this past year or so, that a collection of quantum experts have started to cautiously reduce their estimates about when quantum will be ready for the masses. Hmm. Some are saying it's like five to 10 years away. So it might be time for the general security practitioner to do a little planning. Hmm. So what is the risk here, Rick? I mean, I... I know it has uh, something to do with breaking modern-day encryption algorithms, which sounds bad. bad uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, is this the end of times? Should we shut down the internet, go back to the Pony Express, smoke signals, all that kind of stuff? Just, just say that was a bad idea and we should never do that again? Well, I would say that'd be plan B, Dave, right? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, An alternate plan, plan A, if we're going to, you know, label things, okay, might be to really think about what's at stake here. So thanks to quantum characteristics of, get this, superposition and entanglement, and I don't even pretend to understand what those two words mean, (laughs) quantum computers are massive parallel processing machines. And as my friend Dr. Georgiana Shea says, not a new supercomputer, but a new super-duper computer, right? Hmm. So I really love that characterization, <laughs> right? Because by the way these things are designed, they won't be able to easily break all encryption schemes, but they will be exceptionally good at breaking modern-day asymmetric encryption schemes. These are all the things that are the engine behind everyday internet commerce and probably the linchpin to protecting many government secrets worldwide. And when we get there, the world is going to change. So in this episode, we're going to explain all of that in detail and talk about some of the ongoing efforts to buy down the risk before we get to that milestone. All right. Well, I will look forward to checking that out for sure. Uh, The podcast is CSO Perspectives. Uh, You can learn all about how you can access that on our website, uh, thecyberwire.com, also uh, n2k.com. Rick Howard, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, sir. And joining me once again is Andrea Little-Limbago. She is Senior Vice President of Research and Analysis at Interos. Andrea, it is always my pleasure to welcome you back to the show. Uh, I, over the years, have become convinced that we are a reactive species, that uh, humans, by our nature, are not good at getting in front of things, that things have to get really bad before we're willing to change And that's a long way around of saying uh, that's something I want to check in with you on. Um, When it comes to technology and security, uh, are we always catching up or do do we even have the ability? Is it in our DNA to get ahead of things? It's a great question. And I think in general, I would tend to agree with you on that. But I think we need to try not to be. And so, right. I, <laughs> and so we have aspirations. <laughs> we have to have aspirations not to be. And, yeah. and part of it, I mean, and, you know, so much of it goes back to, you know, whether it's the 
the cycle and you have companies have to report on that quarterly annual you know with quarterly earnings versus you know two years out so it's short-term long-term thinking which i think always dampens our ability to think longer term but you know I, i'm slightly optimistic that we're starting to have some of these thoughts and considerations at least in cybersecurity. You know, these were discussions that weren't had at all during some of the previous big booms and our technological shifts for, for the industry and so but the one that you know, I'm keeping an eye on it right now a lot because I'm not, you know, the, the jury is out on this one on generative AI. It's going to have a big impact. We're already seeing that, you know, it was enormous leap. You know, some people say that machine learning advances, you know, advanced more in, you know, say six months than in the previous decades. I mean, it really was a significant shift with mm-hmm. ChatGPT and all the other large language model that were out there. But my concern is that we're seeing, you know, because of that, it's almost like the gold rush. Everyone's jumping onto it and right. putting it into their into their products, using it in different ways, both you know, personally and professionally. And there's a whole lot of concern about like what, what is the security of that data? How's data privacy? What's occurring with that? There are copyright infringement lawsuits going on right now over the training mm-hmm. data. And there's a whole lot going on around that. And there are, though, not the most vocal voices in the, in the room, but there are voices talking about the security of it and, and advising companies that if you're looking at Implementing generative AI, which plenty of benefits, make sure security is part of it and, that, and, not, and not an afterthought. And I, I think that those companies that do, when they think about integrating uh, generative AI, that do look at the, the security components of it, they'll be the ones that are less surprised going forward. Because we, we are, we're going to see everything from, I mean, we already have, we've seen data leaks because you know, some, uh, you know, an engineer is putting source code into it from, the, mm-hmm. from a company. We've seen that. There are regulations you know, around Europe talking about potentially you know, halting the use of some of these. Um, you know, the U.S. has a whole AI working group to, to look into how to, how to properly regulate going forward. So whether it's the regulatory risks or data leaks, data breaches, malicious uses of the generative AI, there's at least discussions going on now warning people to take security into account and not as an afterthought. And I don't think we had that as much, you know, 10 years ago. So I think that at least the discussion is there. We'll see if people heed the advice or not, or they just want to jump in too quickly. It's a really interesting point, and in in and I agree with you. And I think um, you know, lots of folks are saying that the release of these large language models was an inflection point, perhaps even for society, and I think there's something to that, as opposed to like social media, which I think was more diffuse. It's sort of, you know, it, it, it oozed into our society. <laughs> That's right. You know, rather than being a big, rather than capturing everyone's imagination all at once. So there's a difference there. I'm curious, you know, you and I often talk geopolitics, and I worry that I'm being a bit provincial in my thinking here. I mean, are there nations who part of their culture is being more cautious about these sorts of things. You know, I think we, we have here in the U.S., we have this, you know, move fast and break things cliche, but are there cultures who take a more measured approach? Well, I think for sure the, the European governments are most vocal in raising concerns about it and wanting to make sure data privacy is implemented into it. There's been much more action at, at that level, but I would say, I, I think you're back to your initial point on human nature. I think for the most part, we're seeing organizations trying to jump on this and to get that lead because Boards are asking the company, their executives, what is your plan to integrate this and to make sure that your competitors are not, and they don't get the right. head start on it. And so it's right. framed. And so as long as it's a competitive global economy, we're going to see a lot of jumping on it. 
but hopefully it's jumping and looking <laughs> before leaping as opposed to just, you know, jumping and then looking backwards after and think, oh, we should probably should have secured that. Oh, or we should, probably should not put our IP into a question for a chatbot. But I do think, I mean, there's a, there's, there remains a, a big European, you know, U.S. gap. And then I'd say, you know, on, on the other end, on, on the authoritarian side, it's, you know, consume as much data as possible by the governments and have government control of it. So this very likely will just be another way to try to be used to gain control over information within their, both, actually, I'd say, <laughs> within their, their, their geographic domains and within their cyber domains. What about the regulatory component here? I mean, is it, when something happens this quickly, is, is the regulatory regime in a position to be able to be nimble? Uh, not yet. At least not the U.S., not yet. No. But at least they're talking about it. And I, and I think I, you make a good point as far as, you know, social media really to kind of take a bit of time to diffuse and really take over our, our lives. This, this happened really with a shock. Government is talking about this way more than they hopped on. You know, social media discussions took a very long time to really gain traction. But we're seeing some traction on this already. And part of it's due to some of the lawsuits, you know, mm. especially for, you know, do the, the training data. We've seen defamation lawsuits because if you ask a question into it, it could give false information about a person. Right. Um, we've seen that, you know, in Australia, there's a lawsuit from a mayor who, you know, I think the question basically said that he was someone that was a whistleblower put in jail, was the one actually as a whistleblower and putting someone else in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been a bunch of different defamation lawsuits as well that are, are going into it. And then one thing, what we didn't even haven't even talked about was just some of the the, the wrong information that gets produced through it, right. and being concerned about that. Uh, it's a huge potential vector for disinformation, or just for continuing to exacerbate or amplify wrong information because that's what's been fed into it by the training models. And we see that with like you know, the hallucinations or the fake citations that are you know, basically are made up. They sound credible, they look like they're credible, but yeah, you know, they're they're entirely made up. Right, that's the thing. It, it it'll give you uh, wrong information with absolute confidence. Yeah, and that's and, and so and sort of like the, the notion of you know are we learning and being more proactive and, and that's just one area, right? So we've got five G looking ahead to six G. We've got secure by design. This is pushing forward, and I think in, like that would not have happened ten fifteen years ago. So thinking mm-hmm. about security by design as we're building right. out these new technologies. Those are the kind of things I see that, that give me optimism that at least some people are thinking about it now, but I'm not entirely sure that you know, a few decades ago security was on anyone's radar for that because there was a lot more optimism about you know, the, the positive a- aspects of these technologies as opposed to them being used or weaponized. Right. All right. Well, Andrea little Limbago, thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you, Dave. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast. I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. 
We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. <laughs>